Tuesday, August the 24th, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism here at the Hoover Institution. I'll be your moderator today. That means I have the honor of introducing the three stars of our show, three gentlemen we jokingly refer to as our Goodfellows, and that would be Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, and John Cochran, Hoover Institution Senior Fellows all. Hello, gentlemen. Great to be back. Great to see everybody. Missed you guys. Let's begin. I owe our viewers something of an apology. At the end of our last broadcast, I uh, told them that we would be uh, doing uh, viewer mail for this episode. I asked them to write in questions, and I made that promise five days before the Taliban rolled into Kabul. Uh, we had a conversation before the show and felt it was only responsible to talk about the events in Afghanistan, uh, given just the dimensions of what is going on in that country, plus also the uh, ramifications here in America and around the world. So we will get to viewer mail at some point down the road, I promise, but today is Afghanistan. And Neil and HR, I'd like you to kick off the show. Uh, I'm interested, let's do this for just a few minutes. Uh, I'm interested in how this fits into historical parallels, historical context. Uh, great empires leave nations after a considerable time, in this case, the United States of America, having spent 20 years in Afghanistan. Neil, is it possible for a country to make a neat surgical removal from a country, or is this what is to be expected? Is there anything about Afghanistan to you that is unusual, or is this just fits a historical narrative of when empires do leave? Well, there is a cliche on this subject, which you'll have uh, seen in uh, journalistic writings, that Afghanistan is the graveyard of empires. Uh, and the British uh, were ignominiously ousted in 1842, and then it was the turn of the Soviets, and now it's the turn of the United States. And you can go even back further back in time and, and, and cite other examples. But it's a little bit misleading because, firstly, if you look at exits uh, from empire, the sample size is huge, mm -hmm. and it includes a variety of countries that... Uh, certainly compare with Afghanistan in their ungovernability or economic backwardness. And there are few examples, if one goes through the list of, of all the, the colonies that the Britain vacated uh, in the period of decolonization of a debacle on this scale. Uh, in fact, what's always striking to me when I look through the annals of decolonization is how, by and large, there were a rather dignified exits usually accompanied by the last post and uh, the lowering of the flag. Uh, this, is, this is a debacle by the standards of uh, certainly British decolonization. The other thing that people forget when they cite the example of 1842 is that Britain subsequently fought another war uh, in Afghanistan uh, in 1878, and then from 1879 until 1919, worked out an arrangement whereby uh, the so-called Iron Emir governed Afghanistan internally, but Britain handled the foreign policy of the country so that no hostile power in that time, it was Russia that, that we mainly worried about, had any ability to influence Afghanistan. That actually worked pretty well. Mm -hmm. When Britain then uh, ceded full independence to Afghanistan in 1919, there was a decade when it seemed as if a reforming uh, king would be able to bring Afghanistan into at least the 19th century, if not the 20th. And it only really began to unravel after he was overthrown by conservative opponents of his reforms. Mm -hmm. So I think however you, you contextualize this and the conventional ways to compare it with Saigon 1975, right. actually, if you contextualize it more broadly, this is an F grade. It's a failing grade exit from a military commitment because it has been so poorly executed, as HR, I'm sure, will go on to explain, that we have a significant risk, not just of a Saigon-like debacle, but actually of a 1979 hostage crisis. We're going very, very fast from Saigon to Tehran. And it's hard to think of a worse situation uh, in modern American history than the one that the Carter administration found itself in with the hostage crisis uh, in Tehran after the Iranian revolution. I think the Biden administration is fulfilling a prediction that I made on this show some months ago, that it was going to be the Carter administration redux, not 
Franklin Roosevelt, not Lyndon Johnson, but but Jimmy Carter. And we're we're fast approaching that kind of a situation, as far as I can see. HR, why don't you take over? Um, there are a lot of military phrases I could throw up here. Um, a word that begins with cluster, but I cannot end. Uh, the phrase FUBAR comes to mind. How can a lot of bright people in Washington create such a messy situation? Well, I just think this is this is a unique example because it's self-defeat is what we've seen. I mean, to, to go back to the decision, the decision was made to engage in a capitulation negotiation with the Taliban at a time when our cost in Afghanistan was very low in terms of numbers of troops. We were spending about 2.5% of our defense budget uh, in, in Afghanistan. And what that was buying us is, is really what we came into Afghanistan to begin with, not imperial designs, not to remake the country in our image, but to ensure that Afghanistan could never again be used as a safe haven and support base for those who are committed to mass murder as a principal tactic in a war against all civilized peoples. And, and, and that these jihadist terrorist organizations could no longer be capable of carrying out an attack on the scale of 9-11, which was the most destructive terrorist attack in history. And we, we were doing that at a relatively low level while the Afghans bore the brunt of that fight. So I would say if there are other examples of self-defeat based on a lack of will, I think those are maybe the most appropriate historical analogies. And I can't help but think about Mark Bloch's book, Strange Defeat, uh, in, in which the author contemporaneously cataloged the collapse of France in, in 1940. And this is what I think we're up against is a, is a, is a crisis of confidence based in a lack of moral will. And, uh, and what we're seeing now is, is really the opposite of what we had heard as the conventional wisdom uh, for, for so long, right? That, that, that really, there are, essentially, that there are no consequences for a lost war. We're seeing the humanitarian consequences, but the severe damage to our reputation uh, as well, uh, and, and the, the, the severe damage to our broad effort against jihadist terrorists as the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan triumphs uh, and bolsters uh, the morale uh, and, and the capabilities of associated jihadist terrorist groups, including Al-Qaeda, uh, the organization responsible for the mass murder attacks of 9-11. So I would say that the, the most useful analogy is self-defeat. Uh, this isn't imperial failure, as, as Neil said. You know, this whole construct of the graveyard of empires was, was always ahistorical and was used as sort of a trope uh, by those on what I would call the self-loathing far left, and or or the bigoted, you know, narcissistic, uh, neo isolationist far right. Can I, my my job is to ask questions and compete with Bill here, because uh, you guys know more about history, military affairs in Afghanistan than I do. Um, <clears throat> certainly, from my um, lay perspective, this looks like a, uh, a unbelievable screw up of execution. Now we we can argue with whether the large scale policy was right or not, but uh, you know the president does not personally sit down and take a year to fill out visas. That's the job of the State Department, and their immense bureaucratic incapacity to do that over decades, uh, you know, to, to get people out in 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 less than a year or two years or whatever is an example of things going wrong. Certainly. The low-level planning from this uh, uh, department looks awful. Why would you leave Bagram Air Base? You want to leave something coherent uh, behind you, some idea that these people could fight and, and keep their government going. So uh, somebody needed to think about, hmm, how are they going to get their helicopters repaired? How are they going to fight without air support, without medevac? And this is, uh, you know, we, we jump quickly to blame presidents, but I see a grand failure of the thousands of people in the national security uh, staff, in the State Department staff, in, in the low-level bureaucracy that is supposed to run affairs like this, along with, we can argue with the high-level stuff, uh, perpetually announcing the date of your withdrawal for the last 20 years seems, uh, you know, from this perspective to be an absolutely terrible thing to do all along and something that we were told all along is a terrible thing to do. I read a wonderful report of a, 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 I think it was a Marine who was working in Iraq who said, you know, he'd sit down with some local leader and say, here's what we want you to do. Here's our plan for getting the guys. And the guy says, great, but your president just said we're leaving 18 months from now. So, you know, how, how does that compute with, with us keeping going on? So there's, there are the larger strategic mistakes, but I really want to learn from you guys. How does 
the machinery of something like this gets screw, so screwed up. It's not just presidents, it's the machinery of the policy that is screwed up. And the larger question, I don't think empire is the right analogy. Uh, we were not an empire in Afghanistan. I, I totted up a little bit of the numbers. We're going to get to economics. Afghanistan's total GDP is about $20 billion a year. We spent about a trillion dollars just on the military affair. At least Queen Victoria ran a profit on her empire. Uh, that, 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 you know, vast amount of loss uh, is, you know, that's not the purpose of, of why we were there. But the larger question I see here, not just a failure of an administration, not just a failure. There's been reports of, of squabbling and yes men and people not wanting to say no to Biden and so forth. But a 20-year failure of the foreign policy um, apparatus thinking behind this. And, I, and the historical analogy I'd like to look for, can you, since the end of the Cold War, where has there been a single success, a single adventure we can look back on and say, well, that was a good idea. Uh, run by American foreign policy. Uh, call it Kosovo, call it Iraq, call it Afghanistan now, Ukraine, Libya, Syria. Uh, um, you know, this seems to be of a pattern of a, a grand failure of the foreign policy establishment and the bureaucracy that's supposed to run things. That was supposed to be a question, but <laughs> take it away. I think you're raising a lot of a lot of a lot of different points here, John, that are all which are relevant to understanding better what are the real lessons of our self-defeat, you know, in, in Afghanistan. I think that's what we have to call it. I mean, that's the reality. And, and I think it has a lot to do with competence, as you're mentioning, uh, but it does have a, quite a bit to do with presidential responsibility. You know, what you hear these days is you hear, well, you know, Americans didn't really support the war in Afghanistan and look at the poll numbers. Well, I mean, that should come as no surprise when three presidents in a row tell Americans it's not worth it. I, I would say with the exception of President Trump's approval of a South Asia strategy that was the first time that we had a long-term, sustainable, sound approach to Afghanistan and South Asia. This was the speech that I think our listeners should go back and look at in August of 2017. And of course, he he abandoned that. He abandoned that because you know the, the far-right neo-isolationists uh, got in his ear and, and told him all of the stuff that we know is false, right? That this is the graveyard of empires. Uh, that we did waste two trillion dollars. You know, when when in fact our our level of effort was much lower and was at a sustainable level. As I mentioned, about two point five percent of defense spending committed uh, in Afghanistan, with actually our allies and partners shouldering more and more to, of the burden, and and Afghans taking the brunt of the fight. So I, I think that the the presidents have responsibility. I think President Biden, in particular was stuck in the Obama administration, right? He keeps talking about the massive effort and do you want your sons and daughters to bear the brunt of this and so forth? Well, he's talking about when we had 110,000 troops on the ground when he was vice president and he talked President Obama into announcing the timeline for our withdrawal at the same time as we committed a reinforced effort. Now, how does that work again? It doesn't work. And so I think that President Biden got the advice he wanted I wrote a book about how and why Vietnam became an American war and a period during which Lyndon Johnson got the advice he wanted. And you hear, you know, you hear President Biden went back when his vice president, he's echoed this. Don't box me in, you know, with your with your advice. Well, what does that mean? You're supposed to get best advice. Nobody's boxing you in with your advice. So I think there was a real drive toward consensus and self-delusion. On, on Afghanistan. That's the only explanation for this utter debacle. How the hell does it make any sense to withdraw your military before your civilians? How the hell does it make any sense to give up control of, of airfields uh, be, before any kind of a, an evacuation of civilians or Afghans who would have assisted us? How does it make any sense to say you know, that, that you are you're you're uh, you're incurring a lesser military commitment by withdrawing everything from Afghanistan, so then you have to fly it for five hours just to get in, you know, how does it make any sense to say that you're, you're you know, that you're determined, you know, to to reduce our military capabilities to to I mean, and and numbers to zero, and then immediately you have to commit, you know, orders of magnitude larger force just to cover your retreat. So I I think that 
the president got the advice he wanted. Now, to, on your point of co- confidence or competence, and Neil, I know I know you have some thoughts on this. I'm sure I'm going on so long, but I think you have to look at what everybody's role is. What is the role of the National Security Advisor? The role of the National Security Advisor is to coordinate and integrate across the departments and agencies to give the president access to the best advice, best analysis, and multiple options. Did that occur? I don't know. That's a question to ask. What is the role of the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff? to give their best military advice from from the Secretary of Defense, maybe from more of a political perspective, but from the chairman's perspective, best advice. There's also to execute, right? I I, I don't know. Uh, But of course you have to implement. But, you know, what happened is the mission became withdraw as an end in and of itself. And, by the way, the capitulation agreement we signed, you you know, with the Taliban has us leaving on a timeline because of our surrender to them. And this is why I believe we are going to have a major hostage situation in Afghanistan. We're leaving Americans behind there. We're leaving, and we're leaving Afghan uh, and and multinational partner allies uh, uh, behind. So Neil, Neil, you have a column in the Economist and the Daily Mail in which you put your finger on the problem. Would you would you like to explain that? Well, it's it's like this. Joe Biden is someone with a memory of Vietnam. After all, he was uh, elected to the Senate uh, in 1972. That is, I think, highly relevant here, though I think it has led him uh, to make a very bad decision. And the clue could be found in an interesting book George Packer wrote a few, a couple of years ago, biography of Richard Holbrook. And he, he relates how Holbrook, who was one of those uh, diplomats who tried to contribute to resolving uh, the situation in Afghanistan. Uh, in 2010, the two had uh, a row, a pretty heated debate, discussion. Uh, and uh, I'm going to quote Holbrook. When I mentioned the women's issue, Biden erupted. Almost rising from his chair, he said, I am not sending my boy back there to risk his life on behalf of women's rights. It just won't work. That's not what they're there for. Holbrook goes on. Joe took the position, plain and simple, that we have to get out of Afghanistan. When Holbrook remonstrated uh, that this was not, in fact, the policy of the administration, Biden became heated. Quote, he said, it ain't going to happen. He said, I don't understand politics. We have to be on our way out that we had to do what we did in Vietnam. This shocked me, says Holbrook. And I commented immediately that I thought we had a certain obligation to the people who had trusted us. He said, expletive deleted that, F that. We don't have to worry about that. We did it in Vietnam. Nixon and Kissinger got away with it. Now, that tells us that 10 years ago, more than that, 11 years ago, Joe Biden had formed the view that the United States should exit Afghanistan the way it exited the Vietnam War, and that there would be no domestic downside, or for that matter, international downside to doing that. That is the the story I think that Holbrook was telling us. Now, Holbrook uh, was a controversial figure, not everybody like Dick Holbrook, I was in some ways charmed by him and in some ways in, in, incensed by him when I knew him. But but to answer a question that you asked a moment ago, John, has the United States achieved anything uh, since the Cold War? Yes, actually. The United States finally managed to end the war in, in Bosnia uh, and, and end actually the war uh, in Kosovo too, with two successful interventions. And it was actually Richard Holbrook who negotiated the resolution of that uh, that protracted conflict. That, and hey, that, Neil, I'll just point out, we still have small contingents of troops in ex- both places. Exactly. Exactly what I was going to point out, HR. The point that I was trying to make earlier about Britain and Afghanistan is you're not going to turn these places into Denmark, but you can create with a relatively small force and a diplomatic framework, a stable situation that reduces the threat that these places pose not only to the United States, not only to US allies, but to the people on the ground. And we did do that in the 1990s. Now, Biden's wrong about his Vietnam analogy in two respects. Firstly, it is not the case that there were no costs to abandoning 
South Vietnam to its fate. And it was a grisly fate at the hands of the North Vietnamese uh, communists. It sent a signal to the Soviet Union and indeed to its allies, not least Cuba, that the United States uh, was a soft touch. And in the subsequent period, the period that saw detente unravel, all kinds of uh, moves were made by the Soviets uh, in the Caribbean, in Central America, in su Southern Africa, uh, in East Africa. Uh, it's not the case that abandoning Vietnam had no costs. It is also, I think, wrong to say that there was no uh, domestic political cost, even if it wasn't the abandonment of Vietnam that led to Nixon's downfall or Ford's defeat. I have to say that if I'm asking the question, where did the great shift in sentiment that ultimately produced Ronald Reagan come from? It came partly from that scene and partly from the 1979 Iran uh, debacle, which I mentioned earlier. I, I think the, the key point to make, if you're going to cite Nixon and Kissinger, the key point to bear in mind is something that, that Henry Kissinger once said, and I'll quote him, the problem in foreign policy is not simply to state an objective, but to be able to carry it out over an extended period of time. Otherwise, even the noblest goal can wind up creating an impression of impotence. That is the thing that is different here. It wasn't a decent interval, maybe it was just an interval, but there was a peace agreement with the North Vietnamese and then two years elapsed before the collapse of the South Vietnamese regime because Congress cut off all aid to it. Uh, but this is something far different. This is something in which there has been a completely disorderly transition from a bad deal that was reached with the Taliban by the Trump administration to the most poorly executed uh, evacuation that perhaps there has been in modern times. So I, I don't think Biden's framework is right. And I think his national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, has served the nation very, very poorly in trying to execute what he clearly thought was the president's will. And this is where HR can, can I think, shed some really, really illuminating light. Now, we don't know exactly what has gone on. We can only glean this from leaks here and leaks there. Interesting that we're getting the first leaks from this administration over this crisis. But HR, it is surely the job of the National Security Advisor to make sure that if the president says we're getting out of Afghanistan, it doesn't end with babies being thrown over the razor wire and untold numbers of Americans, to say nothing of those who assisted us, being left in danger. Surely that's the NSA's job, and surely the person who has really disastrously let the nation down is Sullivan. Well, we're just not going to know for some time, right? Who's responsible, uh, to what degree, and who failed. And what you'll see, as Neil pointed out, are a number of leaks coming out, but those will all be self-serving, right, from those who are trying to cast blame away, away from them. Uh, I do think it's important that a National Security Council process driven by the only person who has the president or as his or her only client, that's the National Security Advisor, delivered to the president really sound, hard-hitting analysis that cuts against maybe the president's predilections. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, Neil, uh, John, and, and and Bill, that's that's what I did, right? That's how I kind of got chewed up as a National Security Advisor as well. But you know what? The, the, to serve a president well, you have to tell the president what that president does not want to hear. That's really what occurred all through 2017 on Afghanistan and South Asia and resulted uh, in, in a presidential decision and the speech that the president gave in August. And he wrote this paragraph into that speech himself. This is not the decision I was going to make. But you know what we did? We showed him his preferred option first. In the meeting at Camp David, we showed him this is what complete withdrawal looks like. And this is what happens that cuts against our interests, especially in the, in, in the, in the, in the need to secure our country uh, from, from and protect our country from jihadist terrorists. And then we showed him alternatives, alternatives that could accomplish our objectives at, at, at a sustainable cost. And he made, I, in my view, the right decision. Now, he backed away from it. Uh, but I, I guess the question is, what is the degree to which uh, members of the administration and this process challenged the president's predilections? I think it failed, clearly, because there is clear self-delusion at work and optimism bias and confirmation bias. The Taliban will share power, really. 
the Taliban will impose a more benign uh, form of Sharia and and uh, and, and become re- more responsible. Really, how's that working out? You know, the Taliban will will be a partner. This is what's crazy: a partner with us against jihadist terrorists, including Al Qaeda. Those organizations are completely intertwined. And then finally, and maybe the most ridiculous, you know, sort of assumption is that hey, I guess there are no there are no really negative consequences for losing a war for self defeat against a terrorist organization and uh, and approving the previous administration's negotiated surrender to a terrorist organization. We're seeing all of that now. Who challenged that? How did they challenge it? Was the president receptive to it? Did anybody have the guts to do it? You know, I, I don't know. I would like us to uh, now look forward in three directions. Uh, HR, I'd like you to begin. I want you to uh, talk about what happens next in Central Asia, Afghanistan, our relationship with Pakistan. Uh, I saw a report in the Wall Street Journal that Biden sat down with Putin and asked, uh, talked about building a U.S. base in um, in Central Asia. Putin said, yet. So apparently it's off the table. And this thing also called over the horizon surveillance HR. So first of all, just explain what comes next for Afghanistan in that region. Okay, it's it's going to be hell uh, because uh, we of the 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 view that jihadist terrorists have won, right? That's going to bring more and more, you know, young, impressionable, seeking affirmation people to the cause. It'll it'll give them these jihadist terrorists the ability to put more young people into their brainwashing, dehumanizing factories of these madrasas in in the region. But what we ha- we haven't heard, I think, enough about is that we forced the Afghan government to release five thousand terrorists. And now the Taliban have released the prisoners. And these, these include ISIS Khorasan as, as well as Al-Qaeda members. They're going to flood the zone uh, into Pakistan and into Central Asia. The Fergana Valley will become destabilized again. And, and so will uh, become further destabilized along, along, with, uh, along with the federally administered tribal areas in Pakistan and, uh, and the Baluchistan region. These groups will become more potent as they gain access to revenue along the borders of Afghanistan, for example, but also with with the lucrative uh, poppy and and and, uh, and and heroin trade. So uh, I think that we are in for a period of increased danger that could destabilize Central Asian uh, states as well as Pakistan. And so, what do we need to do? We need to redouble our efforts to to share intelligence uh, and to go after these uh, these terrorists as best we can, mainly through partners, because. You know, I, you asked the question about over the horizon. It just yeah. doesn't work, Bill. It doesn't work. It's a pipe dream, right? And uh, you need kind of continuous surveillance capability if you're trying, kind of trying to collect uh, intelligence remotely. But you really need the human intelligence networks. And that's that's what we're seeing you know, completely evaporate. Now, I will say one thing, that, that we do have a, a real resistance in Afghanistan uh, that we could work with. Amrullah Saleh is in the Panjshir Valley. Uh, the estimates are with about 10,000 very capable fighters who are who are determined not to allow that valley to fall into the hands of the uh, of the Taliban. If we had any guts, you know, if we had any will, uh, we would declare that a safe zone. Uh, and and uh, and I think we're going to have to at some point retake an airfield, uh, maybe Bagram Airfield, to evacuate those as we watch this humanitarian catastrophe and we recognize that there are American hostages uh, in in Afghanistan as well. So, uh, you know, Bill, this whole idea of uh, of over the horizon uh, you know, counterterrorism is, is just it's just a cover really for, you know, for what was the priority, which was surrender and withdrawal. So, Neil, HR mentioned our allies, our partners who are our partners right now. Does this president need to get on a plane and start an apology tour and go to London and Paris and Berlin and apologize for his neglect? Uh, but also, Neil, in terms of history, um, this is an Afghan population that's been subjugated. Now it's been liberated. It's tasted freedom. Women have been able to get educations. They've been able to work. They've been treated as equals. And now they're going to be subjugated again. What does history suggest, Neil, about populations that are resubjugated? Are they passive or are they resistive? I think it's important not to let the NATO allies off the hook entirely because they were more than just the servants or uh, helpmeets of the United States. They, they were uh, responsible actors in an operation that, that dates back to the aftermath of 9-11 when Article 5 was invoked. And I, I think it's a little easy for uh, the, the Europeans to point the finger at the United States and say, tut, tut. Uh, in truth, uh, the Europeans had plenty of time to prepare 
for a situation of this sort, as the United States had signaled uh, last year uh, that uh, it was getting out. Nevertheless, it, it's a terrible indictment of, of the administration's strategy, which, remember, was to make alliances really matter uh, because the complaint had been all along during the Trump administration that President Trump was uh, disrespectful of NATO and of ally alliances generally. Well, right. uh, nothing has done more damage uh, to those relationships uh, in the past five years than this. And it's richly ironic that a democratic administration that claimed it understood the importance of alliances should be the one that can't even uh, find time for a call with the British prime minister in the midst of a foreign policy crisis. Uh, the second question you ask is, is harder to answer. Obviously, we shouldn't forget, even if Joe Biden doesn't care about the women of Afghanistan, that their situation was completely transformed by 20 years uh, of American, of NATO involvement, uh, of intervention. Uh, a massive increase occurred in, in the education uh, of women uh, in Afghanistan. The Taliban want to end all that. The Taliban have a track record of using ferocious violence uh, to impose their authority and turn the clock back to as close to the seventh century as they can get. Uh, everything I see or hear or read tells me they're going to do that again. And to be frank, watching the US government fail abjectly to uh, help those who not only supported the NATO effort, but in the case of women who have become uh, educated uh, and, and professionally active and have become part of a new civil society, to watch all of those people be left in the lurch makes me furiously angry. I've never seen my wife angrier than she has been over the past two weeks. We have found ourselves spending time as of close friends doing whatever we possibly can to help people get out, given that the, the United States government has decided not uh, to uh, do that job. Uh, and I, I, I can't say more than this, that there are private actors who are managing to get uh, women out. And I, I, I salute their efforts. But it is a sad reflection on the most powerful government in the world that it is left to private actors to try to save people who are being left in this disgraceful way. It is a shameful, shameful dereliction of duty, to use a phrase HR uh, knows well. And I can only say that I, I feel a deep, deep pity for the girls and women of Afghanistan whom we are leaving to the tender mercies of uh, the Taliban, just as I feel a terrible, terrible sorrow for those interpreters and others who will be singled out and executed because we decided to leave them in the lurch. Go back, reread The Quiet American. Remember the way in which uh, the British journalist reproaches Pyle uh, with a tale of how uh, Americans and others have promised uh, not just liberation, uh, but democracy, P made these promises, uh, encourage people to believe that we would be there to support the creation of a new future, and then we leave them in the lurch. It's, a, it's such a depressing pattern. To see it repeated again makes, makes me so... So sad. And I'll just point out the degree of hypocrisy is astounding, right? America is back, right? We're going to value our allies more. How about those who in the administration who were authors of the right to protect doctrine? What are they saying now? Where are all the self-styled humanitarians within the Biden administration? Where are they on the rights of the women in Afghanistan as we see them being extinguished and we see, as, as Neil pointed out, the Taliban waged this campaign to drive Afghanistan back to the seventh century. So I, I just think that, that what we, we, we should point out is that this degree of hypocrisy, I think, is, I mean, it's unprecedented. I've never seen anything like it. The HR, to answer your question, they're, they're giving very pretty speeches about how the Taliban must include uh, all sorts of women and minorities and everything else in their uh, uh, in their uh, in their efforts, I, I want to turn towards the future, <laughs> and because uh, I I want to probe you guys on on what happens next, <laughs> not so much on what we should do. I think there's a I've learned from HR. Stop thinking about what you're going to do. Think about what the other guy's going to do um, first, 
And so what what are the Taliban going to do before we decide what our policy is? Now, as an economist, I start by interest, (laughs) not by ideology. What's in their interest to do? So what's their situation? I'm going to think out loud and you guys are going to tell me when I'm all wrong, like like we usually do. Um, First of all, they've got internal protests. They've got, as Neil pointed out, people who've had a taste of freedom, women who've had a taste of freedom and don't like at all what's going on. Uh, on the, also, they're fighters. So I gather we had a big problem recruiting literate people to work for, uh, for the uh, Afghan government army. The typical, who is the typical um, guy with a gun standing in Kabul? He's, you know, basically a goat herd from out in the middle of the countryside. Maybe he can read, maybe he can't. How does, I don't even know how they know their way around Kabul. And certainly the people of Kabul are not happy to have uh, people like that running over them. So, you know, what, what do you do in that? In that situation, I think um, the natural thing is to appear moderate for a while. They don't, they also don't have the security state in, in place yet. So like the Cubans, uh, you appear moderate for a while. That also helps get the international community off your back. And then you slowly tighten the screws. So I, I would look there for uh, a period of looking moderate and, and then, then the execution start. The bigger problem they have is, is plain old fashioned money. <laughs> so uh, um, just for round numbers, G- Afghanistan's GDP is about 20 billion of which 7 billion, uh, about a third came in uh, from outside sources. Um, and and a not inconsiderable part of it came in on C-17s in the form of $100 bills. <laughs> so their G- that's gonna stop. Their GDP drops by a third instantly. Uh, so the, and uh, let's not forget, all of the people who know how to do anything in Afghanistan, all the skilled people are, are trying, are either hiding or they have left and, and trying to leave. So in some sense, you know, all, all of the people we're trying to help get out leaving is another disaster. So their economy is in a disaster and mo- most of it was based on farm. What do you do about that? How do you replace the money? Well, uh, first of all, drugs. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I'll, I'll put in a plug for if America were to legalize heroin uh, and, and cocaine, it would do wonders for our foreign policy misadventures, although it would have some uh, problems at home. They're going to sell drugs. They need foreign Hosts. And as Neil keeps pointing out, uh, America keeps saying there's, there's American citizens, there's people we care about deeply and will do anything for over there. And we got a ton of money. They need a ton of money and they got our people so that they will they will practice some sort of selling hostages for a million bucks each seems to me entirely uh, forecastable. The other thing I think they can count on uh, is uh, the fecklessness of us and the international community and, and how we will not stick to anything for very long. Uh, the status of women in, in Afghanistan now is in great danger. But, you know, we give a lot of money and support to a lot of places around the world where the status of women is pretty darn awful. Uh, we're big buddies with Saudi Arabia, for example, where the status of women isn't that great. The international community, the NGOs and so forth, they give a lot of money to the Palestinian Authority where the status of women is not that great. So I think we're going to get over the status of women uh, much faster than we should, given our uh, ability to do it in other places. And they need foreign support. So uh, they want foreign supporters who will send them stuff. And there's gonna be competition uh, between uh, us, uh, you know, who, who is who is gonna be the foreign supporters, as well as, you know, plain old humanitarian aid that can be uh, subverted to other uses. Um, uh, so uh, that doesn't paint a pretty picture of, of where we go in the future, but uh, uh, with those thoughts in mind, what do you think they're gonna do? Well, I think you've hit a lot about what, what they're going to do, John. I mean, they're, they're going to try to generate revenue in any way they can. They already are generating revenue. I and mean, one of the, one, one of the uh, aspects of this campaign that was planned in part by the Pakistani Army's ISI uh, was to take over all the borders and crossing points and to use that for taxation and to begin to give them a revenue stream. They'll use extortion, as you mentioned, uh, of all kinds of foreign interests. I think our non-governmental organizations are prone to this because of this sort of false nobility associated with neutrality. I don't think anybody should be neutral about about the, the Taliban. Um, and and I think what they'll you know, what they'll try to do is create this this illusion of some degree of normality or a more benign form. But they, they won't be able to help themselves. I think we're going to see more and more evidence of of the brutality. And uh, and they'll use all, all sorts of illicit trafficking, the narcotics trade you mentioned, but uh, semi-precious gems, uh, lumber even uh, is is an illicit uh, is an illicit good uh, along the Afghanistan-Pakistan border. So I I think that you know I, I think that that's exactly what they're going to try to do. But and and you know I mean shame on us if we allow them to do it. I think what's what's uh, extraordinary is that we still have Zal Khalilzad there, 
the, the man who is most responsible for the capitulation agreement to the Taliban. He's most responsible for delivering psychological blows to the Afghan government uh, across the whole negotiation process. He's done more, uh, I think, to, you know, to, to rehabilitate Neville Chamberlain's reputation than anybody uh, in, in, the, in the last uh, 100 years. And, and, and he's still there. And you know what he's doing? He's encouraging, actually, you know, other Afghans to join the Taliban government to, to help them create a veneer of normality. And, and this is a disgrace. He ought to be immediately recalled. Uh, and, uh, and, and we ought to, to make sure that we shout down really anybody uh, who, who attempts to portray the Taliban as a government that ought to get, garner some degree of international uh, recognition. Of course, those who will be rushing to give them recognition are the Pakistanis. Uh, you know, Imran Khan uh, has has said he just said a couple days ago that the Afghan people have been unshackled. We need to make him pay for that and make him pay for Pakistan's behavior. We ought to impose sanctions on him, every senior officer in the Pakistani army and their families, because these are people who bomb help help the Taliban and others bomb girls schools in, in Afghanistan while they send their children to private schools in the West. We need, they need to pay a price for this. And, and we need to work with the Gulf states, if we have any influence left over them, to cut the funding off to the Pakistanis uh, and, and, to these, and to these organizations. Others who will rush in uh, are the Russians uh, and the Chinese because of their unscrupulousness. And then also because they are caught up in the celebration of our self-defeat in, in Afghanistan. Uh, and, and so those will be the immediate lifelines to the Taliban. But, but really shame on, even further shame on us uh, if we if we begin to entertain ideas of recognizing a Taliban government. Can I take up where you just left off, HR? Ultimately, what happens in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Central Asia is important. But in the global context, uh, it's as important as what happened in Indochina after the fall of Saigon. That is to say, it is not in the first rank of importance. What is in the first rank of importance is how China in particular, but I think also Russia, interpret the implications of this fiasco. And it seems very likely indeed to me that they will consider this administration uh, as weak as imaginable and therefore as an opportunity for further action uh, to expose the weakness of the United States. Now, the obvious place where, as we've often discussed on Goodfellows, this could happen uh, is Taiwan. And, and you and I, HR, uh, were discussing only today the potential uh, for Xi Jinping uh, to make a move against Taiwan in the belief that the United States is now a paper mache tiger, because I think that would be the thing below a paper tiger. Therefore, the real geopolitical consequence of the fall of Kabul is not actually in Central Asia at all. It may well be uh, in the Far East, or it could be elsewhere. What does Putin make of this latest turn of events? If he has any intention of, of escalating in Ukraine uh, or of even challenging NATO's credibility in the Baltic states, surely this is the moment. Does anybody on this show believe that if the uh, Chinese launched an invasion of Taiwan, uh, the Biden administration would go to war? Does it look likely that Jake Sullivan, the great believer in a foreign policy for the middle class, would recommend uh, a full-scale uh, deployment uh, to support the Taiwanese? If I'm Xi Jinping, I can't really imagine that scenario at the moment. And if I'm Putin, I'm asking myself, is it 2014 all over again? The last time these people were in office, they declared they weren't the global policemen. A few months later, I walked into Crimea, annexed it. What happened? Sanctions. Well, you know, that, that made my, my eyes water economically, but I still have Crimea and a chunk of Ukraine as well, of, of Eastern Ukraine as well. So I'm, I'm really concerned that we are now going to see a salami slicing uh, directed against American power, American allies, and this will produce a far more serious crisis than anything we're currently seeing. The war over Taiwan, which I have written about uh, many times now, 
starts to look like an all too imminent danger, as imminent as conceivably next year. Because when will the opportunity be better, quite frankly, for Xi Jinping than it is now? What do you think, Adrian? I, I would just add to this, um, it's even more insidious, because if they're smart, they don't launch an all-out invasion that sort of looks like Blitzkrieg across Poland 1939. Um, you, you send in the little green men. Uh, you do it in some deniable way. You China says, oh, there's problems with Taiwan. You start an embargo uh, and, and you start controlling waters around Taiwan, like they did with Hong Kong. Hong Kong, they didn't bother to send in troops. They just did it bit by bit by bit. And uh, our country might respond to a, you know, an actual invasion with missiles and airplanes and so forth. Though, if it comes down to reconquering Taiwan, good luck to that. Good, I, I'm with you. But uh, I think we're, uh, as you said, if it's little bit by bit, deniable, some excuse, uh, a slow tightening of the noose, we're going to issue stern communiques, really stern communiques in response. You know, I, th I, think, uh, I think both of you are right that, I mean, deterrence comes from capability times will. Right. And I, and I think that there is a perception that we don't have the will uh, to, to be able to, to stand up to various forms of aggression of which in which our, our vital interests are, are at stake. And and uh, and I think the reinforcement of that belief among our adversaries has just made the world a much more dangerous place. I think that's true vis-a-vis -vis Russia as well. I think Russia could become emboldened vis-a-vis -vis the U Ukraine and uh, Ukraine and, and then also in the Black Sea uh, and the and the intimidation uh, campaign that they're waging. Uh, against uh, against the Bulgarians and Romanians, uh, for example, in an effort to make the Black Sea a Russian lake, uh, I think there are recent examples of this. Right when when uh, I think when when Russia determined that we weren't going to do anything, thought we weren't going to do anything after the unenforced red line in Syria in 2013 2014, I believe that led directly to the to the annexation of Crimea, the invasion of Ukraine. It also led directly to the to the to the building of the islands in the South China Sea and militarization of those islands. So I, I think that that you know the Chinese and the Russians would be wrong to conclude this, uh, but that doesn't make it any less dangerous. Uh, I think that you know we have responded when when our adversaries counted America out in the previous Taiwan crises, and and certainly there's a dramatic example in June of, of 1950. Uh, but I do think that this has made the world this this self defeat has made the world a more dangerous place and placed more of our vital interests at stake. I think especially when you combine it with the fact that the Biden administration is supplicating to Iranian leaders at this very moment as well in an effort to resurrect the Iran nuclear deal. And the only way that's going to happen, because that deal is dead. I mean, it's it's completely dead. Uh, the Iranians are already enriching up to 60 percent. Uh, you know, the, the sunset clauses of the old deal are, are about to expire in 2025 anyway, begin expiring in 2025. Uh, and and uh, and so the only way we're going to get you know, an Iran nuclear deal is concession after concession. And this will be potentially another, you know, political disaster masquerading as a diplomatic triumph that actually strengthens our our enemies. And I, I would not I would not be surprised if Iran became more aggressive as we've seen them become aggressive against Israel, going against the Israeli owned tanker recently. Uh, and then also, I think, inciting Hezbollah to fire rockets. Interestingly. Drew's militia put down that the, the, the Hezbollah effort to to fire rockets uh, into into Israel from southern Lebanon, but I do think the the attacks out of Gaza a couple of months ago also uh, has aligned back to 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 Iran. So I think the the world is going to be a much more dangerous place based on the fact that in that equation of capability times will, you know, I think that many of our adversaries believe that that the, the you know the 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 uh, you know, the, the will factor is down, you know, close to zero. Is there, to some extent, a moderating force, uh, a sense in which uh, people around the world now say, whoa, the Americans aren't here, we better take care of ourselves. Uh, you know, the Abraham Accords, the Israelis starting to get along with some of the Gulf states, uh, yeah. certainly smacks of that. We can't count on the Americans to defend us against Iran. Iran, by the way, is a great, we were talking earlier about, can you take a, a uh, country where people have tasted freedom and stuff it back down their throats? And Iran is an example of, oh yes, you can, because they were uh, you know, a westernizing country in the, in the 1970s. Uh, similarly, let's look around China. I'm, I'm, you know, yeah, the invasion of Taiwan is, is the visible one, 
But if you're um, Vietnam, the Philippines, uh, Australia, South Korea, Japan, you, you look at the current situation, you say, hmm, we might be on our own. Uh, and perhaps that'll have a salutary effect. Uh, Europe, uh, you know, the Eastern Europeans are, are, you know, I gather the Poles are putting up more troops on the Belarusian border. Well, the Pol Poles have noticed that uh, don't necessarily count on the Americans and they might, might want to think about it on their own. I'm just trying to find something hopeful to, to think about here. I think that's the wrong way to think about this, John. I, I I wrote a lengthy essay for The Economist. Actually, back in May, they took until last week to publish it. So it went from being prescient to being kind of topical. But the central argument I made there was that the, the end of empire or great power status or hegemony or whatever you want to call it is not a peaceful process. Uh, the idea that you get to decline gently into some kind of geopolitical equivalent of... Uh, of Palm Springs is is a delusion. When power declines, it's it's really more like a, a vertical drop. And I worry about the consequences of that vertical drop if if we are now about to embark on it. It's it's clear if one looks back on the dismantling of the great European empires after World War II that that process was accompanied by extraordinary levels of violence. Think only of the partition of India. Uh, but that's just one of many cases I could cite. So I think what you're really describing here is that as it's clear or appears apparent, appears to be the case that the United States is in retreat, then you will get multiple conflicts, uh, multiple regional conflicts and potentially large scale conflicts. Even in Afghanistan, the future of Afghanistan may not be, in fact, it almost certainly won't be monolithic Taliban rule. It's more likely to be civil war, uh, in the same way that this probably doesn't make Pakistan a more stable uh, country, it may make it a less stable one. Now, for me, this is sort of deja vu all over again, because I was writing about this 20 years ago, nearly in a book called Colossus, which was the sequel to a book called Empire. And the, the themes of those books were that the United States might have good intentions in trying to transform Iraq and Afghanistan, but would likely fail because of three deficits. The manpower deficit that makes Americans reluctant to spend long periods of time in countries like that, the fiscal deficit that was already obviously a problem back in 2003, and the attention deficit of the American electorate, which broadly speaking, loses interest in these things after about four years. To me, what's, what's depressing, the reason I'm not angry, I said I was sad earlier, the reason I'm not angry is that I knew this was going to happen. If anything, I'm surprised it took us this long. And, and so I go back to, I look, went back and I looked at that book, Colossus, which was not popular at the time because it said, and this annoyed the left, uh, you know, actually, this might not be such a bad idea. And then I annoyed the right by saying, but it's probably going to fail pretty badly. Uh, but actually, I think that that framework was the right way to think about this. And one of the clear inferences is that if, if a major power, call it an empire or not, if a major power retreats, it does not lead to greater stability. It does not lead to diminished conflict, quite the opposite. Well, it's certainly the, the, the military falling apart of the uh, English empire in, in, in World War II is pretty astonishing. So what you're painting here, let me just paint it for our listeners, is a really dramatically awful picture that yes. was shown to be a paper tiger in Afghanistan, which as we pointed out, well, what the heck, Afghanistan, we, you know, there's Venezuela, there's Cuba, there's horrible places in the world. But um, the the widespread perception that America is, uh, you know, things fall apart quickly as they did in Afghanistan. And if they fall apart in the Taiwan Straits, in the conflict with China, if they fall apart in Eastern Europe, if they fall apart in the Middle East, and it's all everybody for yourselves, uh, that is a absolutely awful conflagration that could happen all at once as soon as everybody figures out, you know, mom's not home anymore, basically. And the key lesson of the British imperial history, and let me be very brief here, but it's crucial, is that if you behave in these ways, if you, if you accumulate both debt and doubt and lose your credibility, at some point you end up having to fight a really big conflict against the superpower or great power that you failed to deter. My worry increasingly is not Cold War II. I think that would be the good outcome. My worry increasingly is actually hot war and that we end up getting to the point where having lost our credibility, we then have to regain it much as uh, Britain had to do in 1914 and again in 1939, but from a position of great weakness and therefore a very great cost. 
I would just say, though, that we, we do have agency, right? This is not a foregone conclusion. And, and, and we do have agency because we live in a democracy and we can demand better from our leaders, right? Yes, we should, we need to tell that. this what it is, right? This is self-defeat, right? And we have yeah. to demand that our leaders across two administrations, uh, you know, don't surrender to terrorists, that we do exercise agency. And, you know, we, we had the, the show uh, a few episodes ago, that 70s show. Uh, the more right. I've thought about it uh, since then, the more I think that is a relevant analogy. I mean, if you think about it, that was one hell of a decade, right? Coming on the back end of the, of the, the racial uh, turbulence and, and social divides of the 1960s, of the increasingly you know, unpopular war of Vietnam, which was of much, much larger scale than what than what we're talking about here. You know, the you know, the the uh, the, the the fall of Saigon in 75. Uh, we've alluded to it, but we haven't really talked about it directly. The Khmer Rouge takeover, you know, of of uh, of Cambodia, the Mayaguez incident associated with that, a decade of stagflation and, you know, and 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 uh, and, and it being that decade being bookended, you know, with the hostage crisis in, in, in Iran, you know, again, it looked pretty bleak. Right. So I think the time is right for, you know, a, a, an American leader who talks to the American people about what we can achieve together. Uh, and we need to restore our confidence, our confidence in in who we are as a people and what we stand for. Uh, and we have to demand better from our, our leaders and we, we can do it. Right. I don't think that we you know, we should think that, you know, just because we're seeing you know, this humiliation, we're only seeing the beginning of it, by the way, uh, in, in, in Afghanistan, uh, that this needs to be the beginning of, of a cascading loss of American power and influence in, in the world. But what you guys are saying is that we are right at a tipping point. Yes, it can come back. I mean, this is our job, basically, is just, you know, our job at the Hoover Institution to say, guys, wake up, be serious, America can come back. But we are at a tipping point. And certainly my view of history, and, and hopefully Neil will agree this time, <laughs> is that we came a lot closer than we like to say to disaster. There's sort of a view of history of the, the inexorable march of progress, but um, uh, you, you know, would we really fight World War II? Would we really win World War II? All of these things could have gone wrong in a horrible way. The 70s could have ended with kind of the pattern that we are now worried about ending now. And it just, it came so close each time and we are close once again, as I think. To, to you, the, the, the climate people like to invoke tipping points, but I think uh, what you're saying is that we really are at one right now. And it's not so much about terrorism, it's about old-fashioned great power politics and what they take about our our competence, our will, our self-belief from how we handle uh, uh, terrorism. That's Neil, a hugely thoughts. important point that you have made, John, and, and also that HR made. This is not inexorable. There's no great law of history that says that great powers must decline uh, in the same way that Hoover fellows must age. We must age, but great powers do not have that propensity. They don't have some natural life cycle. As HR rightly says, the United States was at a very low ebb in 1979, uh, but turned it around in the 1980s, and then almost became intoxicated by its success in the 1990s, uh, to the point of hubris in the early 2000s. But we can, I think, fix this problem, though it will require far, far higher levels of competence on the part of the leaders that we select. And also, I hope, a greater level of historical insight. What struck me as I revisited Churchill's book, The Gathering Storm, which is a must read, it, it, it's extraordinary. You read it and you think, my God, his account of 1930s Britain is a description of the United States today. It's uncanny. But Churchill was an exceptional leader because he had an understanding of history that was really quite extraordinary. And it was the basis for all of his most profound strategic insights. We have an historic, a, a kind of a de deficit of history in our in our elite, which helps explain much of what, what goes wrong. They can't even learn lessons from events as recent as the events of the 1970s. Forget about any further any history further back. So from my vantage point, Hoover's role has to be to try to revitalize the way in which the elites of this country learn from history. That's one of the central things we need to work on because there's no other way of explaining this fiasco than as a kind of failure on the part of the elite to learn from history. Yeah. And to, under, uh, to understand how the recent past produced the present as the first step of, of deciding what, what we're going to do in the future. And, uh, and, and I think that, that, that what happens is 
we, we have become over enamored, you know, with social science theory. That's what we teach in, in a lot of the you know, sort of national security, foreign policy programs at our universities. And, and what that does is it, it gives only a veneer of understanding and it becomes sort of a deceptive rationale for folly because we try to fit you know, really the complex causality of events and the, and the, and, 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 and a, a really designed thinking about these, these problems that really tries to understand the challenges we're facing on our own terms, view them through the lens of our vital interests and, and, and into these, into these, these theories, these, these reified theories, which actually I think are a lodestone around our necks. Hey guys, we're going to cut it off there. Um, great conversation as always. That's it for this episode of Goodfellows. Fear not, we'll be back soon with another conversation. On behalf of my colleagues, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, John Cochran, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, please, by all means, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you soon. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.